Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, we're going to start in verse uh, 27. And as you're turning there, I'll just remind you to where we were a couple weeks ago uh, when we began uh, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, what we saw in that message is we saw how the blessed person, the one who's going to be rewarded, viewed themselves as lacking all righteousness in and of themselves. And uh, today, we're going to get to see the difference between two types of love. The type of love that comes out of people who are cursed and the type of love that comes out of people uh, who are blessed. So Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even the sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return and your reward will be great. And you'll be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you'll not be judged. Condemn not, and you'll not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we see this strange love that does not come from this world. It does not come naturally from man. It's a love that comes from the very heart of the Father and the love of His Son and the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that we would be a part of those who are blessed, who have the fruit of this type of love. Father, help us grow more and more into it. For Your glory in Jesus' name, Amen. Love has been the thing that's marked Christianity ever since Christ was on this earth. Jesus said they'll know you by your love. But the world loves. 
The world has a type of love that people recognize. But Christians have a different type of love that the world does not recognize. They, it seems odd to them. It seems strange. In fact, they know it's a love that cannot come from this world. In fact, it takes a miracle in the heart of a person for this sort of love to come forth. I was thinking about how to demonstrate this, how to illustrate this at the beginning of uh, this message, and there's hundreds of different examples you could uh, point to to point to this peculiar love that Christians have had for even their enemies. But I want to share a couple uh, of the ones that the Lord put on my heart. And uh, one of them even came from my daughter Ella as I was asking them for uh, advice. How do I illustrate this? Uh, and the first one is about a man named Bruce Olson. He grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was born in 1941. Uh, his parents... Uh, went to a Lutheran church. He was brought up in the church. You could say he was religious, but he wasn't converted until he was 14 years old. Uh, Bruce Olson was 6'3", tall and skinny, totally white skin and blonde hair. And uh, God gave him an exceptional gift with languages. In fact, he taught himself... Greek and Latin by the time he was 14. In fact, God saved him as he was reading the Greek New Testament. And in his mind, God was this God who was angry and who was mean and who was just ready to whip sinners at every turn. But when he read in his Greek New Testament that God sent Jesus to seek and save the lost, he realized that God wanted him. And he was converted. And he ended up walking in the winter to a church, uh, not the Lutheran church he was brought up in, but a church where he felt was preaching this sort of message. And he was actually went under persecution by his own mom and dad. And one time, they locked him out in the middle of the winter all night. They were upset that he would uh, walk to church on his own. But the Lord began to put a call on his heart uh, that he might bring this love to the nations, that he might be a missionary. At 16 years old, he began to uh, put out applications at different missionary organizations and missionary boards. All of them came back with a rejection. He ended up going to Penn State University and uh, transferred back to the University of Minnesota to study linguistics. After one year at the University of Minnesota, he's 19 years old, he decides, you know what? All the organizations have shut me out, but I can't stand it. I'm going to go. He bought a one-way ticket against his parents' advice to Venezuela. And... He didn't know Spanish yet. A one-way ticket, a few dollars in his pocket. He shows up in Venezuela 
and he hears about this tribe called the Monalone Indians. No people have been, have been able to learn about their culture. They were a violent tribe. Whenever they came into contact uh, with anyone other than themselves, they would shoot them with bows and arrows. And they were in conflict uh, uh, with uh, oil companies that were trying to take over their lands. And he read in the newspaper one day about how many of the Modalones had got a simple disease that could have been cured by antibiotics. And a bunch of them died. In that day, he says, I can't wait any longer. I need to go. Uh, he talked around, tried to figure out where this tribe was in the middle of the jungle. And on his own, 19 years old, one day's worth of food, he walks into a jungle in a general direction of where he might find these Indians. Now, I can't tell you his whole story, but I can tell you when he finally found them, the first thing they did is they shot him with arrows and captured him. And he went days without eating. He was became very sick, vomiting often. But every time he would come into contact with them, he'd smile at them. He would try to express that he loves them. Well, Bruce Olson is, as far as I know, he's still over there. He led 70% of the Madelon tribes to Christ. He loved his enemies. He had this peculiar love that the world cannot understand. Maybe you even say, he's crazy. Why would someone live that sort of life? You should get the book. It's called Bruchko. That's what they called him. They couldn't say Bruce, so they called him Bruchko. It's a quick read. You'll read it in about a week, I promise you, if you start it. One example of love that can even love the enemies in our own Bibles, in 2 Kings 5, this is the one Ella told me I should share. There was a little girl, a young girl, whose family had probably been killed. She for sure was kidnapped by a Syrian army that came in and raided her family's town. And she was kidnapped and she was given as a slave to the commander of the Syrian king's army. His name was Naaman. And this little girl saw her master, who probably killed her family, suffering with leprosy. And she said, if only he could come to the prophet who was in Samaria, he could help my master. She loved her enemies. And Naaman ended up being healed by God through, the, through Elisha's ministry. An amazing story of a little girl who had this supernatural love in her heart that the world cannot understand. It's an odd love. I'll never forget a sermon illustration a guy named Francis Chan did in one of his uh, sermons. Uh, he had a rope that went way outside of his sanctuary and he grabs this rope and he says, imagine this rope goes on forever. 
And he says, imagine that your life, your 80 years, your 100 years, your 60 years, however much time God gives you, is represented by this little space right here on the rope. He says, this is reality. He said, but the funny thing is, is the world looks at me and says, Francis, you're weird. Why do you live the way you live? Why do you sacrifice the way you sacrifice? You live an odd sort of life, a self-sacrificial life. You're crazy. I just remember him saying, this rope goes on forever. And how you live in this little inch and what you believe determines where you spend all eternity. No, you're crazy, he says. You're the crazy ones for not recognizing reality, seeing reward that is promised by God for those who trust Him and those who are willing to trust Him so much that they suffer in the here and now. This morning, we're going to look at this supernatural type of love. Last week, or two weeks ago, we looked at how do you view yourself? This whole sermon's about the blessed and the cursed. The sermon ends with a house that crumbles to the ground and there's eternal destruction for the one who built that house and a house that withstands the storm. Last week, Jesus was directing His sermon at disciples, which means learners. That doesn't mean saved people. But in general, those who wanted to learn from Jesus, He said to that wide group, He says there's going to be two types of you. One who is blessed and one who is cursed. And He basically said, the ones who see themselves clearly realize they don't have one ounce of, of righteousness to claim that they should be able to enter heaven with. The ones who in fact see themselves clearly, the only thing they can do is beg God to show mercy. They're ashamed. They're begging. They don't think they can earn anything for themselves. That's why they're begging. He says, those ones who are poor in spirit, beggars in spirit, they will get the kingdom of God. God's kingdom. What reward and those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, they don't have a gift from God of righteousness. Those people will be satisfied. There's reward there. There's satisfaction. And then he talked about those who weep over the fact that their sin is not just breaking rules, but it's an offense against their Creator. Their God. Their sin breaks their heart. They don't just know they're sinners. It causes them to weep over their sin. The one who sees himself like that it are the blessed ones. It's just the opposite of what you would think. Those who think they're rich. Those who think they're full. Those who are laughing now 
are going to find out destruction is at the end of the road. He's saying it's the opposite of what you think. Do you see yourself in reality? Well, this week what he's going to do is put on display two types of love. A love that shows it's from God and is going to be rewarded and a love that is worldly and is going to end in destruction. So if you look at your notes, I just want to explain this. We're not just going to tick through these one at a time. Uh, I want to walk through it with you on the front end and then you can look for it as we go through the text. We're going to see the command of supernatural love. We're going to see demonstrations of supernatural love. Jesus is going to show us what it looks like in action because love isn't merely a feeling, but it's action. And we're going to see the means of supernatural love. What sort of roots grow up into this supernatural love? What drives it? What fuels love that can even love your enemies? And then we're going to look at the antithesis of supernatural love. We're going to look at worldly love. And built into number three there, the means of supernatural love are really in this application part Repentant, the repentant sinner who remembers his reward from God will resemble God with supernatural love. If you want to know the fire that burns this love is a person who knows their sin and is repentant. It's the one who understands this last sermon. And also the one who sees the great mercy and grace of God. And that God has satisfied them. They're full. They're the ones that are going to be able to pull off by the mercy of God. It's actually God's love poured into their hearts. They're going to be able to be like their Father and love their enemies. So what type of love do you display? Let's look at the command of supernatural love. Look at verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. There's the command. Now, I want, I want to point out the change in audience. You know, a preacher sometimes is preaching to everyone in general, but sometimes he'll focus in on a certain type of person. And that's what Christ does here. In the previous section, He was speaking to the disciples, a wider group. But then after that teaching, for those who see themselves as they really are, then He narrows the group and He says, but I say to you who hear. Because He knows some people are deaf. Some people think they're good. Some people think they have righteousness. And anyone who thinks they have righteousness in and of themselves that can commend themselves to God could never love the way Christ is talking about loving. Only those who hear, only those who have the grace 
of repentance. Sight to see what they're really like. Sight to see the mercy of God and the reward of God can love this way. Can hear this command. It's bad news when I'm 15 minutes in to start my stopwatch. But, I figure I get 20 more minutes because you guys have pads to sit on. At least some of you. They're spoiling you. Now everyone on this side is going to be sleeping. So we see the command to love your enemies. Now, you've heard that before, so this might not shock you, but to a Jew in Jesus' day, this would be shocking. This is opposite of the teaching that they taught at this point in time in Israel. Israel had begun to defect from the heart of the Old Testament law and they begin to make up man-made rules. And at this point, in fact, there were those uh, who believed that you were supposed to hate your enemies. It just flat out said that's what you're supposed to do. In fact, that's how the world thinks. That's what makes sense. John MacArthur writes, first century Judaism was narrow, exclusive, intolerant, and hence largely loveless and condemning. Hatred of their enemies, especially Gentiles, and above all Roman occupiers, was elevated to the status of spiritual virtue. In fact, in Matthew 5.43, Jesus says, you've heard it said, Love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I say, love your enemies. The, the medieval Jewish scholar Mamedes recorded the Talmud's maxim. These are the man-made rules of Judaism of Jesus' day. Uh, recorded the maxim that a Jew was not to rescue a Gentile who fell into the sea. If you saw a Gentile drowning, it would be sin to go help your enemy survive. So Jesus is, is just one of the most hated preachers, the most hated preacher the Jews could ever hear. He just says the antithesis of everything they teach. Here's a teacher, here's a rabbi saying just the opposite. Love your enemies. But if they would have read the law, read their Old Testament carefully, they would see that God taught them, even in the Old Testament Scriptures, to love your enemies. Deuteronomy 32.35 says, don't, don't take vengeance on your enemies. Leave that to the Lord. Rather, love them. In... in, in uh, Proverbs 25.21, the proverb says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. And what they did is they read Old Testament stories, I think, and they saw how God used Israel to judge sinful nations. And what they thought is, wrongly, is we're good. So God picked us to bring judgment on other nations. The problem is, is God used pagan nations to bring judgment on other nations. And He used pagan nations to bring judgment on Israel. Vengeance is mine. You do not punish 
God's enemies. In fact, God is merciful and kind to His enemies. How dare you punish His enemies? Yes, there will be a day where His mercy will stop and judgment will come, but right now, God is merciful to His enemies. And they thought, being Israelites, they could figure out who was God's enemies and go rain the judgment down. Maybe some of you think like that. Maybe you think because you're a Christian, you get to decide who's an enemy of God and you get to spend your life hating them, speaking against them, and wanting to destroy them. It's everywhere in the Christian church. It's worldly thinking. It's normal. But it's not like God. And then He demonstrates what this looks like. Do good to those who hate you. Love takes action. Do good. Don't just think it. Well, yeah, I know we're supposed to love the Somalis in town. And I do. Well, go do good to them. They probably don't even hate you. But if they do, God says, go do good to them. Go into their restaurant. Help their business go. Love those who hate you. Someone might say, well now what does it really mean? Well, it really means what it really means. And it's as shocking as it was to them. Bless those who curse you. Those who swear at you. Those who condemn you. Those who lie about you and slander you. Bless them. Speak a blessing to them. Have your heart want good for them. In fact, pray for your abusers is the next line. Those who are hurting you, Jesus says, have mercy on their soul. Want good for them. Pray that God would help them. This is a supernatural type of love. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, so God doesn't believe in self-defense? Someone strikes you, you just gotta, you can't defend yourself? No, that's not what he's talking about. At one point, in fact, in Luke 22, 36, he told the apostles to go get a sword. So they, they'd be able to defend themselves from robbers. But what he's speaking to is to the heart of a believer. And what he's saying is, if you really know who you are, if you really know that you're just as much of a sinner as everyone else, and that you have no righteousness in and of yourself, and that God is giving you the kingdom, and laughing is in your future in full righteousness in Christ, that means your cup is totally full. There's nothing more God can give you. And if that's true, the heart of that person doesn't seek with all their heart to protect everything they have here, even their life. Yes, you can defend your family. God gave the government to protect peoples. Our government gives us the right to defend ourselves. 
But there's going to be people who hate you. You might be found in situations where you're not able to defend yourself and God wants your heart to be not to kill them, but to love them. And if they strike you on the cheek, to have the heart of Christ. Christ is our great example. Pull a tunic over his head, punch him in the face. Prophesy who punched you. He could have. He could have told him how many hairs were on his head. He could have told him everything he wanted to. He kept his mouth shut. You want to know why? Because he wasn't there to strike back. He was there to love his enemies, to save them. This is a supernatural type of love. And he says, from the one who takes your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now in those days, most people only had two items of clothing, an undergarment, a tunic, and a cloak. And they would use a cloak at night to cover up as a blanket. In fact, in Israel, there is a law that if you borrow your cloak to someone, you have to return it before evening because that person won't have anything to cover up with. But Jesus says, if someone borrows your cloak, give them your undergarment as well. The point is this. If you know me and you know your reward, what I've given you, you don't have to desperately hang on to all this stuff and defend your life. You're in a position where you're full. You're in a position where you're able to give this sort of love. And then he says, give to everyone who begs from you and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. You might say, well, does this mean I just go give my money away to every beggar and be taken advantage of? No. In fact, the Bible condemns laziness. At one point, Paul tells believers, if you don't work, you don't eat. But the idea is, is that the heart that we're supposed to have towards people is a heart of overflowing generosity to those who are in need. Yes, it means you need to figure out the best way to help the less fortunate. The way John Piper does it in Minneapolis is he takes the Gospel of John little tract, he puts a dollar in them, lines 30, 40 of them up in his car, every beggar he sees, here you go. He's got a plan. He's trying to figure out, how do I love those around me? How do I uh, give to the one who bags? Lenski writes, the disciple loses less, now get this, by letting his things be taken wrongfully than he would by a selfish heart clamoring to have them return. Let me read that again. The disciple loses less by letting his things be taken wrongfully than he would by a selfish heart clamoring to have them return. This whole sermon is all about reward. What's the root? What's the fuel that's going to make this sort of love happen? Well, it's eyes to see that you're no different than your enemies. That's you apart from the grace of God. First. Second, you see the grace and mercy of God. That God hasn't left one good thing from you. Therefore, you don't have to clamor after anything. You're full. You can give it away. Jesus motivates 
by the grace of God, the reward of God. This whole sermon, Matthew's whole sermon, is all about reward. Some of you might be thinking, well, a person ought to love God even with no reward. Well, you're right. But Jesus comes and says, hey, do you want to be the ones who lose out or the ones who are rewarded? Here's the ones losing out. Here's the ones who are being rewarded. And so we begin to see the means as well as the antithesis here. Look at verse 31. And as you wish others would do to you, so do to them. Now this is called the golden rule. This is what we know is the golden rule. And some would say the golden rule is in every other religion in the world. But John MacArthur points out something interesting. Here's what he says about it. He says versions of this so-called golden rule existed in the rabbinic writings, the Jewish writings, Greek philosophy, and in Hinduism and Buddhism. Those formulations, however, cast the rule in a negative sense. And this makes all the difference in the world. Listen to this. They advocate not doing things to others you would not want them to do to you. The Greek philosopher... uh, um, it, oh, I'm, I don't know. You're just going to have to trust me on, <laughs> on, on his name. says, do, do not do to others that which angers you when they do it to you. In his Analects, Confucius counseled, never impose on others what you would not choose for yourself. In the apocryphal book of Tobit commands, do that to no man which you hatest. The famous Jewish rabbi Hillel summed up the Torah in this statement. What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. It's in the negative sense. And it's all selfish. It's saying, you don't want to get bad things from people, do you? If you don't want to get bad things from people, here's the principle of the world. The world works like this. Whatever you do to them, they'll do to you. So do good to them, so they'll do good to you. Jesus' rule is just the positive. Do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. You see the difference? It's not selfish. There's, there's nothing to gain. In fact, I think this is what Jesus brings out. And I'm going to point out all the words that are talking about reward. Look at verse 32. If you love those who love you, What benefit is that to you? That's reward language. What benefit? If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. That's worldly love. If someone curses you, you curse back. If someone treats you well, they'll treat you well back. That's the principle of the world. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit, you hear the language, is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to give back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. That's the difference. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High for He is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. 
He's saying, don't love like the world loves. Everybody does that. Sinners are nice to those who are nice to them. In general, that's how the world works. You know, if a businessman gets ripped off in a deal, guess what? He'll try to rip him off back. That's how the world works. This is marriage counseling. Yeah, I did that, but you did this. Right? That's how the world thinks. If you do this, I'll do this. That's not Christian love. That's not how it works. That's motivation to love hoping that your spouse will return something so that you get what you really want. You're not really loving them. You're loving them like the world, which is a selfish love looking for gain in and of yourself. Jesus says, don't be like that. Love your enemies. If you love like that, they'll look at you and say, those are sons of God. That's a supernatural love. Because that's how the Father is. <laughs> Look at what He says. It's, it's unbelievable. And you'll be called sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So when you see an evil person out there in the world who's ungrateful to God, what happens in your heart? Oh, I hope God strikes them down. Well, you're not like your Father. Because God's kind to them. He's patient with them. He doesn't will that they should perish. There's times of grace. Mercy is not delivering in the moment on judgment, but doing what it, having a heart of desiring good for his enemies. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Do you have this type of love? Do you have the type of love that is supernatural? In fact, there's a way you can live that adorns the doctrine of God. Here's what Titus says. He says, Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. There's a way you can love even your cruel masters, those who are above you, that you adorn the doctrine of God. People find out what God is like. Remember how God describes Himself, Exodus 34, when Moses was getting the Ten Commandments the second time, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with Him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will no, by no means clear the guilty. Meaning, there will be judgment. But if you want to know what God's like, it's merciful and gracious and patience. In fact, He feeds unbelievers every day. Every good gift comes from God. He gives them the sunsets. He gives them vacations. He gives them a type of love for their children. What a merciful and kind God we have. And Jesus says, be like Him. In Luke 12.32, Jesus says to His disciples, fear not, little flock. 
for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Don't be afraid, little flock. And then He says this to them, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide for yourselves, uh, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail. There is no thief who approaches and no moth that destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He says, fear not, little flock. The, my Father is going to give you the kingdom. In fact, He rejoices to give you the kingdom. Therefore, don't hang on to all of it. Store up for yourself treasures, rewards, where moth and rust don't destroy. You see, He's motivating with looking at the grace of God and the reward of God. It's absolutely full of this. Uh, this sort of language. I don't have time to go through all these verses. But then he says, look at verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. You say, well, how do you live life without making judgments? He's not saying not to make judgments. He's talking about a certain type of judgment. The type of judgment that does not see his or her own sin. See, there's a whole group of people who think of themselves as pretty good. And all they can see is the sin in other people's lives. It's a hypocritical sort of judgment. It's the type of judgment that all the religious people had in Jesus' day. This command forbids a harsh, critical, compassionless, vengeful condemnation of one's enemies as if one was vested with final judgment power, MacArthur says. And that's why he says, condemn not and you will not be condemned. Here's what he's saying. Don't go looking around at those who are breaking God's law and as if you're not a sinner saved by grace with a hypocritical judgment saying, how dare they do that? And then saying, damn them. God, come down and damn them. On YouTube, there's a Baptist preacher that prays that Barack Obama will be killed. That God would kill him right here and there. Look at his evil. He points out his evil and then he condemns him. As though he's some righteous man, not a sinner saved by grace. That's normal in the world. But that's not supernatural love. The type of love that marks those who are blessed. And then he says this. Look at the blessed. This is all about reward. Judge not you will not be judged. Who wants to be judged here? By God for your sin. You don't want to be. Those who are true Christians that trust Christ recognize the fruit of their life is that they realize, I'm in the same boat as every other sinner. I want mercy. Condemn not, you'll not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. This doesn't mean your forgiveness earns your salvation. Your forgiveness proves that your eyes have been opened to your own sin and to God's mercy. Therefore, you do the only natural thing if you understand those two things. You offer forgiveness to others. It's the fruit of salvation. And then it says this, verse 38, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be used back to you. Here's what he's saying. Here's, here's how they divvied out grain in Jesus' day. They took their floppy robe and they took the fold above the belt and they'd go like this. They'd make like a pocket. 
and they would pour grain in and you'd shake it and you'd press it down. If, 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 the, if the person giving you grain was generous, they would pack it in there tight. Even to the point where it's overflowing into your lap. And here's what Jesus teaches. Jesus teaches that the measure you use will be measured back to you. Anyone who trusts Christ will be saved, will be able to enter the kingdom of God. But there's a reward in the kingdom of God too, from God. Your joy will be full, but your cup of fullness will be determined by how you loved on this earth. The measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. Your cup's going to be full. God is going to fill your cup up. It's going to be overflowing. But if you loved with a type of measure like this in this world, that'll be put in your lap. God will fill it up. It'll overflow in your lap. But if you use a garbage can or dumpster size measure, that's what Jesus teaches. You and I can be tempted to think it doesn't matter how we live once we're saved. <laughs> Absolute lie. Can't find it in the Scripture. Anywhere. In fact, in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Saving faith is the type of faith that believes not that God exists, but that He rewards those who seek Him. My prayer is, is that you know this reward. 2 John 8 says this, Watch yourselves so that you may not lose your reward, what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. We don't earn our salvation our salvation is a gift of God through Christ. But when you trust in Christ, perfect righteousness is in your account in heaven. You're given the Holy Spirit. And you still have your flesh and you have the Spirit of God living inside you. And you have the Word of God. You have the body of Christ. And how you live matters. How you live your life matters. I wonder if you think of yourself as righteous or if you see yourself as God sees you. Can you have this supernatural type of love, the love that can only come from a person who's been humbled, thinks they deserve nothing, sees by faith that their cup is full in Christ? Then they can overflow. I want to leave you with this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.13. Paul says, if, for if we are beside ourselves, if we look like we're crazy, it is for God. He says, if we are in our right mind, it's for you. If you're experiencing our self-sacrificial love, it's for your good, but it looks like we're out of our mind. But then he says, for the love of Christ controls us. This foreign supernatural love was poured into Paul's heart. He says, the love of Christ controls us. Now look at the means of how this love works. 
Because we've concluded this. Because Paul was thinking by faith about this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He's saying, here's how I love with his supernatural love. I've concluded that I'm a sinner that deserves no good thing. And God in his mercy sent his son, Jesus Christ, to go to the cross to bear my sin. In the, and when I trust in him, perfect righteousness is awaiting me in heaven. I can't earn one ounce of my salvation. And not only that, but reward God's mercy and grace. And that reward is God Himself. And it's all the whatever heaven is. The, the talents we're given, the work we're going to be given in heaven, the opportunity to love each other in heaven. What an amazing reward is waiting for those who trust Him. Do you see it? Do you realize that that's the blessed life? Have you clung to Christ by faith? That's the question. That's the most important question you'll ever face. And I'm telling you, this sermon is scary because the religious ones, the ones that look good in the eyes of the world, are the ones who are out. And the ones who are humble, the ones who might not look that impressive, and are broken over their sin and are clinging to Jesus, they're the ones that are in. If you're a sinner, you qualify. Trust Him. Father, what amazing love you show, You've shown us. What a miracle that this kind of love can actually flow out of our lives. God, I pray that the Gospel would have a demonstration of self-sacrificial love because of the way we love our enemies. God, I pray that we would love in such a way where we seek nothing in return. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.